I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Lorette C. Luzajic. She comes to us from Toronto, Canada, where she is the founder and host of the website ekphrastic.net. Now that's very appropriate because she is both a visual artist and a poet. And I'm so glad you could be here with us today on Poetry Spoken Here. Thank you so much for having me, Charlie. Uh, I think we, uh, I mentioned to you I was going to start off with this, just in case people have not looked into ekphrastic poetry or or thought about what it is. That's E-K-P-H-R-A-S-T-I-C, ekphrastic, and it's a particular type of poetry. And why don't you just tell us some things about it? Sure, of course. So the word ekphrastic um, simply means, it comes from the Greek, and it means out of expression. So it's a fancy word for a verbal description of artwork, and it goes quite far back to Homer, um, and then along the way, somewhere with Ode to a Grecian Urn, it took on uh, the meaning that it was a literary form that would describe a visual work of art so that someone could see it in their mind. But um, in modern times now, it has gone further to mean in general poetry that, or could be uh, fiction or any kind of writing that's inspired by visual artworks. So it wouldn't necessarily have to be a description at all. It's just that you got the stimulus or the, it's what you spin off of. You spin off of some kind of visual art. Well, this is my freewheeling definition for sure. Um, so maybe some ac academics would argue that, but um, it, there's no particular understanding. It's quite broad and debated. Well, actually, your, debate, your, your definition makes a lot of sense to me because sometimes I find myself being not real interested in a poem that merely describes a work of art. I mean, I'm sure it can be done well, but generally speaking, I, I I get more into a poem that spins off of it, you know, and does something else or something in addition. So I think that very interesting way to inspire a writer to think in a different way from the familiar. So I'm interested in poetry that might um, confront or inhabit what's going on in the painting not just describing, oh, here I see some trees and a nice sun, but really going deeper, looking deeper. Do you typically get your art from a certain place? Do you go to museums for this? Or do you, I don't know, scroll around online or have a lot of artist friends uh, that you visit their, their houses and studios? So for my own acrostic poetry, of course, I um, go to the Art Gallery of Ontario here frequently. Um, and I have a lot of art books that I just love to look through and they may trigger um, some thoughts or ideas. Um, yeah, so all of the above. Yeah, that makes sense. You always look for any stimulus you can get to write a good new poem. Mm -hmm. At least that's my experience. Well, why don't, we, um, why don't we hear one of your poems? Sure. I'll start with Portrait of the Artist as an Old Woman, which is a poem about Tamara Delempica. And it was inspired by her body of work, but specifically by some photographs of her in her old age, which were just fabulous. She was very leathery and in big, fabulous hats and 
didn't really give a shite what anybody thought. And <laughs> um, so this is for her. Texas, 1982. Her thighs are dark and papery. Thin twin branches under a broad brim, a gorgeous gaudy circus of gold rings, and in between inhalations of her oxygen machine, endless cigarettes. Russia, 1917. It has been 70 years since the communists broke down her door, found her 17 and naked, making love on the floor. Wrapped in a silk sheet, she stood in the winter street and watched them take her husband. She saw a frenzied flock out front, folks feeding on the frozen flesh of fallen horses. Perhaps she would wear pale peach satin thingies again. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, she would. Filmy little wisps of slips, soft under stroking fingertips. She would. She would help silk for stockings and sweets, too. Chapter 2, The Count, The Castle. And then the Nazis. Again, the knock at the door in the night. Now there was only America. In photographs, Tamara glowers, a bitter and fabulous empress in front of her grand paintings, a portraitist laureate for every doctor and actor and mogul among Jay Gatsby's acquaintances. She wouldn't settle for less than millions, and when she was robbed of it, she would just make it again and again. Her work was epic, like her. Books and cigarettes, travel, cocaine and ladies, emeralds and always fur. She was a sleek and modern Byzantium. Her shiny icons turned tempera to stained glass. A museum of faces coolly detached, the flat planes of paint, clients and lovers as jewels, stones. It's, it's not based on, the. it's based on the photograph, but it's, it's really based on a lot of what you know about her too, her other artwork, I presume, and multiple photographs, perhaps. Overall impressions of her work as a body as well as her uh, personality. Yeah, and it and it works with, uh, I can imagine the photograph you mentioned, but then I can see how the other ones just inform your background. And that's what allows you to go beyond the specific individual work of art. Yes, that's uh, a good description. When did she live? She would have died sometime recently in the last couple of decades. Uh, so she was the Art Deco, I mean, Jay Gatsby is in here because that was her era. Her paintings would have been in those mansions. Um, she did the European and American glitterati, if you will. Um, so she was denigrated to some degree for being a portraitist and only catering to the rich and famous. It was shallow, but of course she was very driven to not uh, live in communist poverty again and just to, I mean, she was ruthless in a way and she did what she had to. Very few women are rich painters in their lifetime. Um, so right. it's certainly a unique story. And this, I'm going to say her name again, Tamara Delempica. She's also, I imagine, one of the many women we could call out as, let's say, not getting their due, being overlooked perhaps being lost to art history. Is that correct? Or, I mean, do people know of, she has been a little bit discovered in the last while, ever since Madonna bought a portrait for her home. And so that sort of brought her into the public imagination more. And um, it's certainly among a cult following. Yeah. 
I mean, she made her millions while she was alive, so I don't think she cares that she'll be remembered. Um, no. That same effect that other people, artists might. Yeah. She and was people, very of the moment. Mm -hmm. And people with a cult following tend to be real interesting. So it's great to <laughs> her and are telling us about her. Uh, it it seems, by the way, I want to mention, it seems like your, your website um, really fulfills a need. I was surprised when you said you've been doing it for just like coming up on two years and that you were able to get the name Ekfrastic and you didn't have to have Ekfrastic 101 or something, you know, for Ekfrastic.net. So uh, you've got it and are you getting a lot of response? We are. I'm amazed at uh, both the personal response I get one-on-one um, -on -one from uh, poets who just write to me as a person to say how much they appreciate this niche um, as well as a readership for a literary magazine. We have one to 2,000 readers a week, which wow. is, um, it's very uncommon. I've had literary magazines before, and they're just, it's a dime a dozen. As much as right. we love them, there's a lot of them. But there aren't a lot of outlets for this type of um, literature where everything comes with uh, a visual prompt or is accompanied by a painting and that has filled a niche because I think a lot of writers looking for a new way a new voice they um, find these exercises to write something by a painting they may may um, find interesting or something someone else says here try this and that really takes them outside of their usual work and it's interesting and once you get hooked on doing that as an exercise it stays with you and you find this is a you can never have writer's block you just look at something and go and you don't know what will come and that we have um, the accompanying images a lot of publications will publish an acrostic poem but not the image because there's a lot of copyright hassle so we do fill a niche it's out there as well we're not the only one but I like to think sure. we will be the the premier yeah, well, it's, fa it's fabulous that you include the uh, the image. That just makes it makes a lot of difference. It really gives the reader an an, an interesting um, point to focus on, and it's very interesting when we have several poets write about the same painting, so that you can see it again from a different perspective later. Um, that often happens, someone will see a poem and the image and they'll submit a different poem from that image. Mm. So it's really, really cool to, to see so many writers uh, making departure in their work. Yeah. Okay, well, how about giving us another poem? Okay, so this poem is called The Ravine and it's after a painting of a ravine by Van Gogh. My wish was carried inside of me, silent as sleep, to rest beside you in an autumn ravine, or spring, warm, toasted by the sun and close to the earth. I thought about merging the last of our years, last rites, to find impossible ways, ways we'd never found in our chaotic lives, of until, unless. Imagine what remains of our given days as one long riverbank afternoon, tender madness. What better way to herald pending doom than to light a fire? Let me offer myself to you perfectly imperfect, lay beside me then before we are old. Now, that's lovely, and it's a, per a perfect example of a poem that you don't describe the, the painting at all. 
I, I'm not sure I know which painting this is. I don't know what it is. I've got, but I've got the poem, and the poem was just interesting of what it's about. So I did choose this because it is an example of a painting that I sort of inhabited looking. It doesn't say a word about, you don't need to know that it's um, acrostic at all. It's simply this poem would not have been written. I saw this and I was able to put myself into a whole different frame of mind and um, just see this sort of intimate uh, meeting with somebody who was not really there yeah. and write a poem about it. So it's a great example of how the painting may not even appear in the poem, but you will have something that's totally different from your frame of mind. I think of one one kind of ekphrastic poem. It, it reminds me of Haibun. If you oh, know the Japanese. Be, yeah. Because it's a big no-no to have, you got the prose followed by a haiku, folks. That's a Haibun. And uh, it's a big no-no to have the haiku just tell you what you said in the prose, to repeat it. That's just, you shouldn't do that. It's just pointless. It's redundant. The haiku is something somehow, something else that extends what is said in the prose. And somehow I thought of that since I talked to you yesterday. <laughs> I'm thinking about acrastic poetry, about how the poem extends what's in the visual art somehow. Interesting. We, we do get a lot of that um, form, and I'm interested in more. I enjoy the prose part. You can really get carried away with a poetic explanation, but then it closes with that really um, the, the tight ending. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Uh, could could you tell somebody, uh, give somebody uh, tips, let's say, about if they wanted to, I want to write an ekphrastic poem, they say, I don't know what to do first, or uh, I don't know how to proceed once I've found an artwork I like. Do you have any particular process? I do. Or is it just go every, yeah, great. You can do all kinds of different things. You can just look at the piece and see what kind of story you can come up with, but if you're stuck and you don't know how to get started, I recommend first jotting down words that come to mind, as many as you can. And I also recommend in intensive looking. So I would ask someone to look at something without thinking too much for, you know, five to 15 minutes. And you will be able to reduce that time to 30 seconds or a minute later, you'll, you'll, grow so accustomed to to looking but just really see what's there and what thoughts come free to you and another technique that's good is to write down a lot of questions about a painting um and somewhere in here something will spark for which narrative direction you want to go and i recommend this as as well as an artist i i help people look at art um, they may feel they don't understand an image or don't like it, and I let them know they don't need to like it. Their feelings are valid. Their response is valid. But look as deeply as you can so that you can um, talk about why it doesn't appeal to you or why maybe access why it does appeal to you, why it speaks to your soul, not just I like it, I don't like it. But that's how you can really go deeply into a picture. And this is reflected in writing as well. So they're symbiotic, in my opinion. Mm, that sounds good. So go beyond that visceral yes, no kind of thing and see if you can make yourself articulate something about it. You're actually, I, 
This makes me think about trying to interweave right and left brain activities. You're almost saying, can you, can you get a little analytic about what your, your, your big response is to the picture? That's sort of your right brain visceral thing. Uh, what, can you, what can you tell me about that? Well, that's an interesting connection to make because it probably is exactly scientifically accurate. Um, you've got both things going on there, right? The uh, creative emotional and then seeking a, a, a way to express it. Um, and then in turn, to letting that go to become something creative again. So I think that's probably exactly right. Um, I just ask people who are interested, not everyone's interested in art or poetry, so you don't have to be. I'm not interested in football and baseball, and those are wonderful things. But if you are, don't be intimidated by a bunch of shoulds or by, I'm not sure I understand this art form enough, and other people do. Your response is valid, and you can nurture and grow your response, and you can change your mind. You might love some paintings later on in life, or you might grow to hate something and realize it's facile and you used to love it. And that's all okay, it's part of the journey. Oh, that's a good message. I think more people need to need to believe that message and to be freed up to to encounter art and poetry really. Since you write, you know, words and, and, and visual, what you're saying makes so much sense because of the way, the fact that you work in the two art for, two kinds of art forms. Feed each other, so one never has to have artists or writers block. If one well is dry, the other is always there. Um, so my problem is having too many ideas, not a blockage. <laughs> I have to censor and decide where to focus. That is that is spoken like a true artist. <laughs> you don't run out of things to express about and get into. Great. Well, how about another poem? We have time for another. Okay, sure. This um, is just a fun little poem, and I thought since your audience here is probably all bibliophiles, um, yeah. uh, here, here's a quick little poem about books, and it's called Book Madness, and this is a true story. Um, it, it's inspired by a painting of a stack of books by Ephraim Rubinstein, but again, it can exist independently of that. Book Madness. I went into the bookstore. I didn't mean to, but I did. I saw all that I looked for, the volumes I had gotten rid of in a frenzied purge for space for shelves that had some room for more. I bought them back and at my place heaped piles further on the floor. <laughs> yeah, that is funny and I believe it's true. It happens. <laughs> I've gone to library book sales and seen my own books on the shelf. <laughs> Oh, I'm not alone. That's great. Tempted to bring them back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we had to get rid of a lot of books when we moved last summer. And so uh, that was hard to do. But now there's empty shelf space for more. So It's a constant battle. I have to constantly purge, but there's more coming in all the time. And yeah. only so many hours in which to read. So <laughs> Right. I know. Some, yeah, the old so many books, so little time. This has been really great. Lorette, Thank I'm so, so glad much. so glad you could do this. And I think this is a it's just a really wonderful topic and it's it's going to make me pay more make me personally pay more attention to uh, ekphrastic opportunities and uh, and put a little more attention on it. Maybe I'll try to do some of these, you know. I, I would like to. Um, yes, you should. It's so fun. I have to get in my head the the, the relationship of 
of how much to say about the poem and you're helping liberate me from, I mean, the, the art and, and you're helping liberate me from the idea of don't sweat the art. It's just like walking into a room and you look around and you get inspired. You look at a piece of art and you get inspired and you write the poem. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so thanks a lot. We've been talking with Lorette C. Luzicic, the founder and host of ekphrastic.net. Thanks for being here, Lynette. Thank you so much for having me. It was great fun. We've been listening to Lorette C. Luzicic talking about ekphrastic poetry here on Poetry Spoken Here. Now I'd like to talk about a recently released movie written and directed by Jim Jarmusch. I expected to like Jim Jarmusch's Patterson, and I did. If you're okay with what I think of as old European movies, slower-paced films about real people living real lives, you'll like it a lot. The film covers a week in a very routine life of an ordinary guy named Patterson who drives a bus in the New Jersey city of the same name, and he's devoted to writing poetry. A little background. Patterson's the title of one of the great poems of the 20th century, a five-part book-length poem written by William Carlos Williams, who was a pediatrician who practiced in the Patterson, New Jersey area. He lived in nearby Rutherford, New Jersey, where the public library today is a small collection of his possessions on public display. The poem Patterson was published in its five parts between 1946 and 1958, a time when doctors still made house calls. Williams often scribbled notes in his prescription pads about the people and happenings he encountered going through his everyday activities. These notes were used to create poems and stories. In the movie, the character Patterson, played by Adam Driver, carries a notebook with him at all times in order to jot notes as Williams did, whenever he can find a few moments before his shift starts or on breaks or when he works over the notes in the evening surrounded by poetry books. It's the best description I've seen in a film of how poems are created. Patterson lives in an ordinary routine life. He wakes around 6.10, 6.15 each morning without an alarm clock, eats a bowl of cereal, goes to work, comes home, and eats dinner with his partner, Laura. After dinner, he takes the family dog for a walk, during which he drops into a neighborhood bar for just one beer. The bartender, who bears some resemblance to Dizzy Gillespie, keeps a wall of news clippings, photos, and other memorabilia about people and happenings of Patterson over the years. For example, there's a picture of Lou Costello, who was from Patterson. Meanwhile, Patterson's woman, Laura, is an at-home person who engages in various creative endeavors, perfecting her cupcakes, painting the walls and fabric in abstract design all in black and white, and beginning to master a new guitar with the dream of becoming a famous country western singer. She's an energetic, outwardly optimistic dreamer, a counterpoint of sorts to the more quiet, contemplative, almost brooding Patterson. She's also a contrasting creative type who bursts with outward energy, enthusiastically moving from one interest to another, while Patterson remains focused on quietly writing poems. Also, whereas Lauren would like her creative endeavors to lead to fame and fortune, Patterson doesn't care if anyone but Laura ever reads or hears his poems. She even has to push him to make copies of his poems. A single copy is in his notebook. 
In an interview with Amy Talman during the New York Film Festival, Jarmusch talked about studying poetry at Columbia with Kenneth Koch and David Shapiro, and about his enduring affection for poets of the New York School. He noted that Frank O'Hara's manifesto, called Personism, in which O'Hara says, Don't write poetry to the world, write poetry to one other person. Jarmusch says he tries to do that with his films. And obviously that's what the character Patterson does in the film. Jarmusch also notes that poetically, Frank O'Hara is in a direct poetic line from Williams. The film has been on Jarmusch's mind since he first visited Patterson on a day trip 25 years ago, when he took what he calls some vague notes toward the film. A couple of other items seem worth mentioning. Twins. If you count the twins in the dream Laura has early in the film, there are six sets of twins. Jarmusch claims he got started on that idea when a couple of his extras happened to be twins. He decided to go with it, and for whatever reason they managed to get into the film, it's interesting to note other parallels, paired elements that, like twins, are similar, yet unique and different. Here are a few I noticed. Both William Carlos Williams and the character Patterson make art out of seemingly little, the minutia of everyday life. In a way, the film Patterson and the character Patterson's poems are similar in that they are artistic products, again, created from the ordinary, everyday, that might not seem at first glance good material for art. And the character Patterson and Lara, as I mentioned earlier, are two ordinary people who are artistically creative, though they have two very different creative styles. At least one critic complained that the film feels too retro, asks if Jarmusch has lost his edge, but I think that's not the case. Definitely our character Patterson does not have a cell phone, but as an incident in the film demonstrates, he gets along fine without it. And the slow pace of life for a guy who writes poetry, because he loves to write poetry, is completely appropriate. You have to admit, poetry is a low-tech art form. And I tell you, this film will give you a lot to think about in terms of creativity in everyday life. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com. Poetry Spoken Here.